But then this not just be another message where we hear it and go, yeah, nice one. Yeah, what's for lunch? Carry on with the day. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be at work today in our lives. Would you open the eyes of our heart? Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. And as we've seen over the last few weeks, we really are as individuals and as a church in the race of our lives. We've been entered into this race by his grace alone, through faith alone. We don't deserve to be in the race at all. We don't deserve to have a number on our front and a number on our back, not in any shape or form. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were running far from him. We were running, but it was away from him. And yet in his grace and mercy, he saved us. Death was arrested in our soul. He saved us by his grace. He turned us around. He forgave us. He reconciled us to him. He adopted us into his very family. He assures us that heaven is our home. And prior to that day, he gives us the gift of running. And he helps us see for such a time as this, you've been called. And he urges us to run in a manner worthy of the calling we've received. And he tells us in Hebrews 12, listen, a great cloud of witnesses has been gathered around you. There are men and women from of old that are cheering you on, encouraging you. He's going to be faithful. He was faithful to us. He will be again. And as the great cloud of witnesses then gathers around your life, he urges us to put aside then every weight and sin which clings so closely. Things that will distract us. Things that will deviate us from the path and instead to run this race with passion and endurance. It's not going to be possible by ourselves. But when we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, all things are possible. When we run with our gaze upward, everything is possible in this race. And you know, when it comes to having one to whom we can look on this race, a teacher, a trainer, and a coach, it is remarkable to me that we get to look at Jesus. There's no better one that we could look to. And just this week, I was thinking and reflecting, you know, how, Lord, how kind it is that we get to look to you. Because as you start to meditate on the reality of who it is we're looking at, who it is that is teaching us and training us, it gives us, I think, such hope for the race because this one who is addressing us here, Jesus Christ himself, he's run the race. And he finished the race. And it was a hard, hard race. If you want one who is going to relate to you in this race, it is Jesus. Because he knows. This ain't all a bed of roses. It can be difficult. I mean, Jesus' race, it begins with the incarnation. The creator of all. The king of kings and lord of lords. The one who spins the galaxies. The one who put the stars in their place and sustains them, having breathed them from his mouth. The one who breathed out the sun then became a son, the son of Mary, the son of Joseph. He came through the birth canal of a human being. He took on flesh. And you would think when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords comes to earth for his race, that everybody would be waiting and a great fanfare would arrive to the palace in which he's born. But there was no fanfare and there was no palace. He was born into the squalor of a borrowed stable, and in so many ways, that kind of sums up his life. It sums up his race. Isaiah 53 verse 3 describes his race well. 
Isaiah says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That was the Savior's race. The one to whom we look, that was his race. He was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus knows what it's like then to be tempted. At the very start of his ministry, the very start of his ministry race, he was drawn out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He fasted. And then having been drawn out into the wilderness by the Spirit himself, he is tempted by Satan face to face. He knows what it's like to be tempted not to run. He knows what it's like to struggle with the temptation of, maybe I shouldn't do it. Maybe, maybe I can't do it. He understands. The writer to Hebrews actually says that he was consistently tempted throughout his whole life. So we can relate to him and he can relate to us because he has been tempted just as we are, yet without sin. In his race, he was mocked and abused and accused. Whenever he's trying to do good, the scribes and the Pharisees are right beside him. In effect, telling him, paraphrase, you are a loser, you are a liar, you are a fanatic. No one listened to him. That was his race. That's what it looked like. Even the crowds that were there to see Jesus and enjoy Jesus, their motive wasn't good, and Jesus knew that. They're not there to bow their knee to him, to worship him as King of kings and Lord of lords. They're there because they need him. Hey, listen, I'm sick. Heal me. Help me. What do you mean you won't help me? Help me. And he spends hours and hours and hours and hours on this race, healing people and helping people, the majority of which refuse then to ever follow him. In the Gospel of Luke, you have the wonderful story of him healing ten lepers. One comes back to give thanks. What happens to the other nine? No idea. But what's clear is they ain't too keen on doing anything about it. They've got what they wanted, and now they're on their way. My friends, this is Jesus. This is the one to whom we look. He was also misunderstood by his closest friends. We all have close friends, right? Jesus was massively misunderstood by his close friends. Three times he tells his closest friends, his disciples, that he's going to die. And three times they go, yeah, nice one, thanks. That's really interesting. Thanks for that. Anyway, when you get into your kingdom, can I sit at your right and can I sit at your left? Imagine how hard that would be. You're trying to tell your best friends, hey, listen, this is going to be tough for me. Would you pray for me? Yeah, 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 good one, good one, yeah. Um, Anyway, when you get into your kingdom, imagine how hard that would actually be in your race. And then he begins to understand what relational abandonment and pain will mean in his race. It was hard. The night before Jesus died, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the Gospels, we discover that his soul was so distressed that he sweat drops of blood and he staggered. The king of kings, the one who breathed out the stars, actually falls to the ground, literally overwhelmed at the weight of what he is about to encounter. William Lane, in his wonderful commentary of Mark, says it this way. He says, The dreadful sorrow and anxiety, out of which the prayer for the passing of the cup springs, is not an expression of fear before a dark destiny, nor a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death. It is rather the horror of the one who lives wholly for the Father, 
at the prospect of the alienation from God, which is entailed in the judgment upon sin, which Jesus assumes. The horror thus anticipates the cry of dereliction in chapter 15, verse 44 of Mark. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus came to be with the Father in the garden for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven open before him, and he staggered. He gets what it's like to be in the race and overwhelmed. Three times he goes back to his best, best friends, Peter, James, and John. He brings them to the edge of the garden of Gethsemane. He says, listen, I'm overwhelmed. Please, please just stay awake. Please do one thing for me. Stay awake and pray for me. He goes into the garden. He sweats drops of blood. He staggers. He keeps going back to them. And every single time he goes back, they're asleep. And then the next day, On Good Friday, he endures the height of pain and the depth of shame on the cross. He gives his life away as a ransom for many. The one who made our bodies, who made nerve endings, then begins to feel them on full display as nails are driven through his hands and his feet. And then even the father turns his face away and the wrath of God is poured out on his son. Listen. When it comes to having one to whom we can look on this race, when it comes to having a teacher and a trainer and coach, it simply doesn't get any better than King Jesus does it. He knows what this race is like, but what he also knows is it is finished. He also knows what it is actually like to run the race and complete the race. He's run the race and finished the race. You're running the race. You're not finished yet. So when it comes to having a coach and a teacher and a trainer that is actually here to help us, to aid us, to understand, to relate, there is simply no one better for this task than Jesus. And so how kind of him, right here in Matthew chapter 6, it is to talk to us about this race. See, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, in context, is talking to us about the Christian life, the kingdom of God, and what it means to run in this race. Why? Because he loves us, and he cares for us, and he gets, this ain't always going to be easy, so I want to equip you and help you for the race. And how kind he is then, in Matthew chapter 6, to pull up a seat alongside us on this most beautiful Galilean hillside to teach us one most important thing. And it's this. That our race and our money are without doubt linked. That's the message. Your race and your money, they're linked. And that is the point of Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. It's to help us see that our race and our money are without doubt linked. Now, quite clearly, Jesus isn't embarrassed at all to talk about money. So often in our culture and in our day, we are embarrassed to talk about money. And we definitely don't like pastors talking about money. The problem is, pastors follow Jesus, and Jesus talks a lot about money. So if you're going to be faithful to Jesus, you have to bring up money. Out of 39 parables, 11 of them talk about money. If you add up all the recorded words of Jesus in the Bible, 15% of them talk about money. Why? Did he just want money? 
No! He wanted your heart. He wanted our heart. And he knows, as the creator of all, that our money and our hearts are intrinsically linked. And so it's important to him. And if it's important to him, it needs to be important to me. And it needs to be important to us. Jesus right here isn't trying to wreck our lives. He's trying to save them. He isn't trying to hurt us. He's trying to help us. He has finished the race and he knows then the importance of money on this race. I have three points this morning as we unpack this together. Number one, the divine opportunity, where we'll spend most of our time. Number two, the divine warning. And then finally, number three, the divine choice. Let's begin where he begins. Number one, the divine opportunity, verse 19 through 21. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, when Jesus talks there about the heart, what he's talking about is the real you. Paul Tripp in his book, In the Instruments of the Demon's Hands, he says it this way, I think it's so helpful. He says, the Bible uses heart to describe the inner person. Scripture divides the human being into two parts, the inner and the outer being. The outer person is your physical self. The inner person is your spiritual self. The synonym the Bible often uses for the inner being is the heart. It encompasses all the other terms and functions used to describe the inner person, spirit, soul, mind, emotions, will, and so forth. These other terms do not describe something different from the heart, Rather, they are aspects of it, parts or functions of the inner person. The heart then, listen, is the real you. It is the essential core of who you are. Though we put a tremendous amount of emphasis on the outer person, we must always remember that the true person is the person within. So true. When you say, I'm just really looking forward to getting to know that person, what do you mean? Get to know their face? Get to know their nose, their finger? What do you mean? No, get to know their heart. Get to know who they really are. And the Bible uses the phrase heart to describe the real person. And what we learn again and again and again and again and again in the Bible is our hearts and our money are always and inevitably linked. Always. You see it in the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 7, we have the story of Achan. In the book of Kings, we have the story of Solomon. In Acts chapter 5, we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira. All stories where they're going well and then it goes horribly wrong. Why? Because their hearts ultimately love money. And their lives are derailed and there's consequences as a result. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about right here in Matthew chapter 6. For where your treasure is, where your money is, and where it's going and what you're doing with it, there your heart will be also. It's just, a, it's just a fact. It's just the way it is. What Jesus wants to help us see is this is just a divine reality. We can't help ourselves. Wherever we put our money, our hearts will go there. So if you want to like, do up your house and buy a house and spend all of your money doing that, great. Guess what your whole reality of your whole life will be? I'm most passionate about my house. 
Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Well, I love to travel. Man, I'm passionate about travel. I dream about traveling. Okay, I bet that's where your money goes as well. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's just a divine reality. And that's why Jesus says to us right here, listen, given this reality, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust, moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Why? Well, not only... Because storing up treasures here is a waste of time because people will steal it anyway. It will never satisfy in a way you'd hoped. Not only that, but because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if you give all your treasures here and all your time here and all your energy, your entirety of your life will be right here. But if you use what God has given you to steward in your treasures and point your things to heaven, guess where your heart will be? It will be heaven. It will be a day to come. So do not lay up yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up yourselves treasures on heaven. This reality of our hearts and money being linked, it isn't just a divine reality. It's a divine opportunity. Because as Jesus pulls up alongside us this morning to help us, what he wants to help us to see is, listen, use your treasures then to point your hearts to things above. You want your hearts to be passionate about the kingdom of God? You want your hearts to be passionate about heaven? You want your hearts to be passionate about him? Great. Point your treasures there because that's where your heart will go also. And I was thinking this week just about this reality and I thought, you know what, in all honesty, for us here in Australia, we really desperately need this divine opportunity, don't we? It can be so, so tempting to think of and embrace this world as home. And if you don't think you're tempted by that, then you're just blind to the reality. You're more far gone than I thought. It is so tempting to think of and embrace this world as home. Listen, here in Australia, our greatest challenge is not persecution from the world. It is seduction by the world. Our greatest challenge, our greatest threat is not guns and bullets in a gun. What we'll call Christians here is not guns, it is distraction. It is seduction by the world that, in my opinion, is being readily be embraced by churches in our country. No one even sees it anymore. Our greatest challenge isn't persecution. Our greatest challenge is seduction. And yet the Bible makes clear, listen, this isn't your home. Here's the divine reality. Heaven is your home. That's why we're told over and over again, listen here, you're aliens, you're strangers, you're sojourners, you're just lodgers here. You're here for a time. Run the race, run passionately. But this isn't your home. Like it wasn't Abraham's home or Isaac's home. This isn't your home. This isn't ultimately our country. We're just living in the world. But ultimately heaven is our home. So the Bible repeats to us again and again and again. Listen, let's just think about that for a moment. Because right here he says, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And he's talking to us about pointing our treasures to heaven. I don't think we think about heaven enough. But that's home. Where do you think you're going when your race finishes? Heaven. What a place it will be. Heaven is a place where there will be no more pain. 
No more arthritis, no more mental illness, no more hay fever, allergies. No more cancer or AIDS or tooth decay. I love that. Dentists will be unemployed in heaven. No more heart attacks, no more asthma, no more coronavirus. We will not have broken down bodies in the heavenly realms. There will be no more sin, no more rape or theft or murder. No more fear or immorality or drunkenness. No more crime or war or abuse. There will be no more decay. There will be no more corruption. There will be no more death in heaven. You will no longer have to hold the hand of a loved one as they are about to die because there will be no death. Instead, we will be in a place of profound and glorious laughter. Heaven will be one big explosion of joy. Do you see that? What is it going to be like to hear the Father's laugh echoing through the heavenly realms? What is it going to be like to hear Jesus laugh? In the heavenly realms, it will be an explosion of joy. They will be feasting together and drinking together. There will be music and worship. We will get to enjoy paradise. The trees and the fields and the rivers and the mountains and the glaciers and the seas and the beaches, they've all been designed by God. Everybody who's ever built anything in this world, any architects, any artists, they've all been given the gifts by God. So imagine how great it is to know that he's building that. And we're going to get to enjoy it together. Not just in these bodies that we have. No, we're going to get to enjoy it. In perfect bodies. We won't be angels or ghosts. If you've ever seen like a picture of a little angel on a cloud, you think, man, I don't want to go. No, neither do I. If it's like that, it's nothing like that. We won't be angels. We won't be ghosts. Our bodies and souls will be transformed and made perfect. You'll still be recognized. You'll still carry your same name. But you will be able to run and walk and touch and talk and see and hear in glorious perfection in a way that you never were able to hear. And you won't be alone. In the heavenly realms, the angels will be with us. They will also be singing and praising the Lord. I'm looking forward to getting to know some of those bad boys. You know what I mean? I'm looking forward to find out. Whoa, you kind of glow like a lot. There's a lot of fire going on. I'm looking forward to meeting some of these guys and actually talking to them and communicating them. There will be men and women from the past, Noah and Moses and David and Mary and Joshua and Peter and Paul. We'll finally be able to look Enoch in the eye and go, so where did you go? We'll finally be able to ask some questions to these people about what went on. And we'll be there. People from every tribe and language and nation who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But most importantly of all, He will be there. Jesus will be there. The one who called your name. The one who died in your place. King Jesus will be there. Wayne Grudem talks about that moment. He says, when we look into the face of our Lord and he looks back at us with infinite love, we will see in him the fulfillment of everything that we know to be good and right and desirable in the universe. In the face of God, we will see the fulfillment of all the longing we have ever had. To know perfect love, peace and joy, and to know truth and justice, holiness and wisdom, goodness and power and glory and beauty. For when we finally see the Lord face to face, our hearts will want nothing else. My friends, when we finally reach home, and it ain't going to be quick, 
This race isn't a sprint. Truth is, it ain't even a marathon. Even a marathon you'll be able to do like in a day, even if you're really bad. This is decades and decades and decades of running. But when you finish the race, heaven will be your home. Heaven is our home now. All we're doing is running home. But here's the thing. We all forget. We all forget. We get up tomorrow morning and Tuesday and Wednesday, we forget. This is our home, right? No! But we all forget. And so here's what Jesus does. He pulls us together on a mountainside in Galilee and says, hey, listen, I've got a gift for you that's going to help you to point your hearts to heaven. I've got a gift for you that's going to help you each and every week of your lives to point your hearts to the heavenly realms and ensure that this isn't your home, but that is your home. Okay, sweet. What is it? The gift of giving. I want to use your money and your treasures to point your hearts to things above because you will constantly be seduced into thinking this is your home. So I want to use your gifts to point your hearts there. You know, in Sydney we can think, okay, is there something else? Is there like a plan B? No, there is no plan B. That is the gift that he has given us. My friends, what we see right here then is the divine opportunity. The divine opportunity to point our hearts to things above. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So use your gifts and your treasures to point your hearts to things above. Listen, if you're not passionate about heaven, let me ask you, how's your giving? Oh, I don't think much about heaven. Okay, no problem. How is your giving? And I think what you might find is, well, I, I don't. Okay, well then all we're doing is applying the Bible then your treasure is here. So you think all the time about here and not there. There we go, counselling session over, not needed anymore. Just apply the Bible. But where your treasure is, there are your heart. It's the divine opportunity. But that's not all Jesus has to tell us here. Number two, he tells us about the divine warning. He says, I examine this text It is so tempting to preach on verses 19 to 21 and then just say thanks very much for coming and move on. Because in 19 to 21, Jesus gives us a divine opportunity. It's great. It's easier to preach opportunities. But actually in verses 22 to 24, he gives us a warning. He's effectively saying, listen, this is the opportunity. But if you don't do it, it's going to be a problem. The divine warning, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. No one. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Listen. You cannot serve God and money. You know, if they needed to hear that, this crowd, this crowd around him in this moment would have been relatively poor. To be quite frank, they wouldn't have had a ton of money. And he's helping them see you will not be able to serve two masters. If they need that, then how much more do we? We are the rich. Okay, Whenever you come across the word rich in the Bible to do with money, I want you to insert your name. He's talking to you. It's going to be very hard for you. The temptations for you and I are much higher than it was for them in a part. And he makes it clear you cannot serve both God and money. Tim Keller, in response to that, it made me laugh this week to the point where I had to run out of my office to tell Glenn all about it. 
Tim Keller says, you cannot serve both God and money, Jesus says. And yet we like to think we can because we are great compromisers. I just laughed out loud as I read that in my office this week. I'm like, oh my goodness. That's like our story. I mean, here's the thing. Here's the thing, God. I hear what you're saying, Lord. You can't serve two masters. I get that. But here's the thing. I have two kids, right? I have two kids. I love them both. I serve them both. And I actually have two employers. I work for Sovereign Grace Church Sydney and I work for Sovereign Grace Churches Global. It's fine. We could do this. I think I can serve two masters. We'll be cool. It happens in many places in my life. We are great compromisers. But Jesus looks right back at us and goes, you know what? No, you can't. You've got to make your choice. Are you going to serve me? Are you going to serve money? Are you going to make your life about me? Are you going to make your life about money and stuff and comfortability? You can't choose both. You've got to choose. And the choice comes in verses 22 to 23 when he outlines for us why it is that we can't serve both God and money. This is what he says in verse 22 and 23. He says, The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. You know, when I first read that, I thought, man, this is like a scene out of Lord of the Rings. It's like a riddle. I mean, I can't, what, what do you mean? What's kind of going on? I don't get it. Is this like a, a Gollum and Bilbo Baggins moment? I just don't understand what is it really talking about. But when you study this verse, particularly in line with verse 24, which is his conclusion that you can't serve both God and money, it then makes sense. Let me explain. Tells us up front in verse 22 that the eye is the lamp of the body. I think we get that bit. Okay, so the eye is the lamp of the body. Well, yeah, that's true. You can tell an awful lot from people's eyes, can't you? You can tell when they're joyful, when they're happy, when they're loving life, when they're full of faith. But you can also tell from somebody's eyes when they're sad, when they're struggling, when they're confused. It's why I'm not a big fan of texting and WhatsApping anything of any value and worth because you cannot see anybody's eyes. So you have no idea what the emotion is. And just because we put a smiley face on the end doesn't really help, you know. It's when you look into somebody's eyes, you can tell really what's going on. Why? Because the eyes are a lamp of the body. They give a lot away. But the truth is, that these eyes that are lenses of this lamp, they don't just let light out. They let light in. It's a two-way thing. It's not just light coming out from within. But the within is ultimately fueled by God. what comes without, is what comes from the outside. And that's what Jesus is talking about. William Barclay puts it this way in his commentary. I found it very helpful. He says, the idea behind this passage is one of childlike simplicity. That was a bit depressing reading that when I couldn't figure it out. But the idea behind the passage is one of childlike simplicity. For the eye is regarded as the window by which the light gets into the whole body. The color and state of a window decide what light gets into a room. And if the window is clear, clean, and undistorted, the light will come flooding into the room and will illuminate every corner of it. But if the glass of the window is colored or frosted, distorted, dirty, or obscure, the light will be hindered and the room will not be lit up. So then, says Jesus, the light which gets into any man's heart and soul and being depends on the spiritual state of the eye through which it has to pass. 
For the eye is the window of the whole body. Great. Now it makes sense. Here's how it makes sense. Imagine the scene of a great race. If the eye is healthy, then the eye is looking up to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. If in this race we're looking at Jesus, we'll find identity in him and joy in him and security in him and passion in him. We won't be primarily going up and down depending on what we see here because our eyes will be up and we'll be so ecstatic that we're running to him and that heaven is our home, then it'll all make sense. But if our eyes are not healthy, meaning they are not looking to him for our identity and value and worth and security, they're going to be looking at something else. Exhibit A, money. So now my eyes are distracted. And you know what? I'm in for that Jesus thing. I'm in for the race. I am, definitely. Just give me a minute, though. Because right now, if I could just get a house, I think I'd be happy. I think I'd feel far more secure in Sydney if I could just get something that brings me pleasure, you know? Do you know what then happens? You get your house. I don't own a house in Sydney, but I did own a house in the UK. Guess what happens? You get the house. Does it bring security? Yes! For six weeks. And then guess what you want? You want the extension, and you want the decking, and you want the stuff in your house. Because I, I need more stuff to really like, make me content. And then you get all that, and guess what happens? You go to somebody else's house, and you see, they just have a bigger TV than me. I thought my, my TV was massive, but man, my TV isn't that big at all. And they had like 4 HD. I think I've got like one and a half or something. I mean, I, could just, I couldn't even see any pixels. It was amazing. My eyes, it was just a whole experience. And I just think, listen, hey, Jesus, I'm, I'll be back to you in a minute. But, but just, just, if I could just get the TV, then I'll be happy. And it never comes in flashing lights as, as obvious as that. It comes with time. But when you look on at your life over the months and your years and you realize, man, we keep talking about this race and I really need to do that, but really all my time and energy is going here. It's going into my house. It's going into doing up my house. It's going to get stuff. Why? Because that is where your heart really is. And what Jesus is saying is you cannot serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. You're going to have to choose. Because this idea that you can just do both is not a reality. Why? Because you ain't got eyes that are facing both ways. You know what I'm saying? You've got one set of eyes. You can only look at one thing, one vision. And you've got to decide what is it going to be. Are you all in for Jesus? In which case, lift up your eyes to the hills and run for him. But don't think you can do that. And I'm going to give my life to the rat race, which is Sydney, and do everything that the world tells me I need to bring you happy. You can't do it. You can't do it. This way brings life. This way brings darkness. This way brings truth and joy and genuine happiness. This one brings fake happiness, which is short-lived, which is why you have to keep turning it over again and again and again because it never satisfies. It's the wild goose chase. How kind then of Jesus to sit us down on a Galilean mountainside and say, hey, listen, I love you guys. And I'm for you guys. And I don't want you to waste your life or your race. I don't want you to be seduced by the world. It will never satisfy you. It will never deliver as promised. It's only me that will deliver as promised. And so listen, here's the things. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Use your treasures to point to me, to point to my heavenly realms, because that's where your heart will go. And don't be duped into thinking you can serve two masters. You can't. Sydney, you've got to choose. What do you want to do? But don't for a moment think you can do both. And where that leaves us, then point three, is the divine choice. The divine choice. See, the big question now for each and every one of us in the room is, so what are you going to do with it? See, the letter of James, James chapter 1, verse 21, it says, this word is able to save our souls. James makes it very clear that this word brings life to our souls. The words of Christ, the words of God himself, which all these are, they bring life to our souls. They're able to save our souls by his grace. The implanted word of God into our souls will save us. It will save us not only from our sin, it will save us from our distraction. It will save us being pulled away in a world that so easily wants to seduce me with a thousand different things. It's able to save my soul from that distraction and instead help me to run for him. But he tells us, Just hearing it, that ain't going to do it. And so as the sun sets on the Galilean mountainside with Jesus having said his peace, we all have to decide, what am I going to do with that? Am I going to believe it and apply it? Am I just going to let it pass? James says it this way in chapter 1, verse 22 to 25. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away, and yet at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. See, my friends, you may come to the end of a five-week series on the race of our lives and think, man, that was awesome. I feel so blessed. I want to encourage you. If you've done nothing with it, you are not blessed at all. You've just heard some really interesting stuff that could change your life, but it isn't changing your life unless it's applied. It's exactly what James is telling us. You're not going to be blessed in your hearing. Not really. You're blessed in your doing. Peter David says it this way. He says, No matter how extensive one's scriptural knowledge or how amazing one's memory, it is self-deception if that's all there is. But true knowledge is the prelude to action and it is our obedience to the word that counts in the end. So here's my question. What then are you, what then am I going to do with this now? You've heard the coach. You've heard the training, you've heard the teacher. Jesus himself has spoken to us. What are you going to do with it? In light of the reality that where our treasure is, there is our heart, what's your move? What are you going to do? In light of the reality that you can't serve two masters, that it's a fact, what are you going to do? How are you going to guard your heart from pretending that you can in light of the reality that we not to store up treasures on here, but instead store up treasures in heaven, what is your next move? Church, you will never be blessed in your hearing. You'll only be blessed in your doing. If you want to live in the fruit and the reality of what Jesus is saying, it doesn't come through by hearing. It doesn't. 
It comes through by taking this word to heart and then prayerfully considering, okay, Lord, I'm in. What do you want me to do? You know, next week we have the Go Forward Fund coming up, as Brendan said. I want to encourage you, seriously think over this week. What does the Lord want you to do? What does he want you to do? When it comes to your regular tithes and offerings of the church, what does he want you to do? One of the things that I can think can be helpful is for everybody to own up to this one thing. Listen, if everybody in the church gave like me, where would this church be? Think it through before the Lord. Lord, I want to be a giver. I want to be a builder. I don't want to consume. I want to play a part. I want to use my treasures to point my house to things above. Because, Lord, I'm so tempted to take this world as home. Lord, help me to use what you've entrusted into my life to point my heart to you. I don't want to get distracted with this. I don't want to finish the race and then go, what was I doing? Lord, I never gave to the church properly, but, Lord, my house is good. That ain't going to work. And as a pastor, I want to prepare you this day in light of that day. I ain't worried about the money. I'm worried about your heart. Same as Jesus. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He wants our hearts. Church, we really are in the race of our lives. We've been entered into it by his grace alone. It's staggering. It's staggering that he called our names. It's staggering that our numbers are up at all. The stadium around us, well, it has slowly but surely been filled. Filled with the faithful of old that are looking on and cheering us on, that are looking down to clap you on. And so laying aside every weight and sin which will cling to you really closely. Let's lay it aside. And let's run with endurance. And let's do it all looking to Jesus. We can't do this by ourselves. But if we keep our eye on the prize, Jesus being the prize, we can do all things. So let's look up and let's run to him. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. And Lord, I do thank you that you deeply love us. You're deeply bothered about our lives. You're deeply bothered about our race. And so for you, there is nothing off limits when it comes to topic. Because you know how we were made. Because you made us. You know all about the race. Because you ran it. And you know what it is to finish the race, even under duress, because that's what you did. Lord, I thank you that you're not just far off calling us home, but through the Holy Spirit, you are in us. You're there to help us from within. That's why we can listen to that small, still voice as we're seeking to run, because you'll be talking to us. You'll be helping us. This is how you run. This is what you're to do. Lord, would we have ears to hear you so that we may run well for your glory, running with endurance, for the joy that is set before us, which is you. And would all glory go to you. Amen.